Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF podcast. Now, I found myself chatting on Twitter last week to a New Zealand hip-hop DJ and collector, talking about classic and lost recordings, local rap groups and DJs, and along the way, we got to talking about Zane Lowe. Now, these days, Zane's top brass at Apple Music, and he's the Beats One host, whose interviews with musicians led to his recent description in the New York Times as Pop's unofficial therapist. If you know Zane, you know him as a music fan. You may know him, for instance, from his time championing new music on BBC Radio 1, and he's basically broadcasting royalty. He's almost certainly New Zealand's most successful broadcaster of all time. Now, what you might not know is that Zane's also a musician, record producer, and rapper himself, and a pretty great one at that. There are those who maintain that one of the albums he produced is New Zealand's greatest hip-hop record ever. These days, I'd put it somewhere in the top two. His band Breaks Co-op had the distinction of most played radio single in New Zealand, and they made it onto Top of the Pops in the UK, though without Zane, for reasons of possible perceived conflict, I guess, since he was also a BBC host at the time. But that conversation I had with DJ Substance reminded me of this interview I'd recorded with Zane about 10 years ago. And it's one that was used in part for a radio documentary, but which was never, at least to my knowledge, aired in full. And so I thought it might be of interest. I tracked it down, dusted it off, and here it is. Now, I have a bit of history with Zane, and this was something of a reunion. It had probably been a decade since I'd last spoken to him, and it's been another decade since we had this conversation. So I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. Here's Zane Lowe, years ago. Enjoy. I'm sitting in a radio studio. It's BBC Radio 1 in central London, and I'm talking with Zane Lowe. And I'm trying to remember when we first met, because I, I was working for your dad yeah. about, uh, nearly 20 years ago. And he said, uh, my son is kind of a, a rapper. Uh, would you mind like staying after work tonight and recording some stuff for him? Do you kind of remember it like that? Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. I, I remember the first time that I went into the, the radio production studio that you were doing all the stuff for Radio Pacific. And uh, and I mean, Dad just reached out because he knew I had these ideas and this, these beats and these rhymes. And I think that he saw I was at a bit of a loose end and sort of said, well, listen, why don't you use the studio? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was his suggestion, and and I remember going up and meeting you, and just you were very enthusiastic, and you wanted to help, and you wanted to make music with me, and it wasn't just like I'm doing a favor for your dad, you know, you, you got straight into it, and that was a kind of a big turning point in my life, really, because it it kind of proved to me that I could finish a record, or at least to some level or standard. <laughs> your dad's a bit of a legend in radio in New Zealand. Okay, I mean, this interview's over. It's good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Okay, it took you three seconds to bring my dad. I'm joking. I'm just I was just going to say, what was it like growing up around that? Um, well, you know, the thing is, um, it's always good to hear people talk highly of my father. And um, for the longest time, you know, I was Derek Lowe's son. And, and that's the way I, I, that, that's who I am. That's a big part. Yeah, that's, that's what I am. I'm Derek Lowe's son, and I'm very proud to be that. Um, he's left an indelible imprint on my life, and, you know, in many different ways. And, and obviously, professionally, I've ended up in an area that he has had a huge amount of life experience and, and great success. And so... I guess it doesn't take a genius to make the connection. Um, growing up around that at the time, radio to me was different because it, it was my dad's life. And so I saw the impact it had on my father, both the successes and, and the things that he considered failures, the ups and the downs. And so for me, it was just a, it was kind of what my dad did. I remember a conversation he, that I had with him when we started to sort of hang out kind of more as mates when I was 
in my teenage years and and you know, the the gap the age gap narrowed um beer basically uh so we started drinking beer together and he said he said to me you know do you ever see yourself on radio and I, you know i i said flat out no it wasn't for me i wanted to be a musician i wanted to be a record producer i wanted to to make the songs that ended up getting played on radio and i didn't want to follow in my dad's footsteps as is the term but i guess some things you just can't deny you would have been around a lot of broadcasts at the time. So I imagine, you know, the classic, uh, you know, oh, heroic man. broadcasters coming through your house all the time. You know, Bodica, you know, Kevin Black. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of those guys used to hang about. You learned at their feet? <laughs> well, I ended up at their feet a few times, you know, just because I'd be fast asleep at the various parties that would be being had. And, I, you know, it's like I'd just crash out wherever I crash out. Um, I have fond memories of those times, you know, and they, and they were just family friends to me and... Obviously, looking back on it now, they were kind of big stars in a golden age for New Zealand radio when it was all new and exciting and rock and roll was on radio and Radio Haraki was the only place to get it. And it's like the movie The Boat That Rocked, that kind of Richard Curtis movie that came out recently, you know, which isn't particularly good, but it did have memories for me and the whole pirate radio thing. And it did resonate for me for that reason. And um, yeah, I mean, I've got good memories of that time, but I was really too young to take it all in. And it was only when I started to get into radio myself or actually TV initially, um, which in some weird twist of fate also involved Kevin Black because he, he, he had uh, a hand and he was on the board of Max TV. Uh, and that, that kind of brought everything full circle for me. What were the big tunes for you at the time? I mean, do you, do you remember yourself as a kid that was really into music? Yeah, I mean, as far back as I can remember, music was kind of the only thing that, that really motivated me. You know, I was really into f- sports and I went through a football phase and basketball phase and all these sort of things, but... For me, it's always been music. It's always been my number one passion outside of family and friendship. And, you know, I think for me growing up, I think as the story goes, and I don't really remember this, or I kind of do vaguely remember it, um, you know, being in a situation. I vaguely remember it being, you know, um, with my cousin, Garth, and and listening to Deep Purple. And that's kind of one of my earliest memories was listening to Smoke on the Water with my cousin. And um, so, you know, music's always been a massive part of my life and there's songs that could soundtrack my entire life. How long you got? Somebody told me that uh, U2's War was the first record you bought. Is that right? Yeah, U2, that album was the first album that my mother kind of gave me some money and said, you can go and buy a record of your choice that you want. You can get a tape. And that was what I chose. And I, I don't know. I may, I can't remember if it was, it was... Maybe it was New Year's Day. I can't remember what was on the record. I think New Year's Day is on that record. I mean, there were songs that I remember hearing on the radio at the time that probably propelled me to do that. But um, you two were definitely one of the first bands that I ever really fell in love with. And yet, when you hear you talking to Bono now, it's like your old mates. It sort of feel. What, what's that like? Actually, kind of like these formative ex- experiences becoming kind of part of your daily life. It has its weird moments, you know. I mean, there are times when there's a fan of a band for that length of time, and you find yourself in a situation where, as you sort of put it, you have some kind of relationship with members of that band, and, and there's a recognize there's a, there's a recognition there. Um, it's fulfilling, it's rewarding, it's good, you know. It's nice to know that you can meet your heroes and they don't disappoint you first and foremost. Um, and it also, I guess, in a way, if you want to look at it a little deeper, it just I think everything that you do in life informs something. You're sort of building your journey as you're going. And that seems like an obvious thing to say. But I mean, with with advanced knowledge, you know, it's like you're doing things that you don't see any impact for years to come, maybe decades. And I guess that the wheels were set in motion for all of that when I bought their tape, you know, in a strange way. So it's nice. And I've had that with people like Eddie Vedder and people who have had huge impact on my life and to be in a situation whereby I'm talking about our kids 
and you know what's going on just life with this guy is i mean that's yeah you pinch yourself we're going to talk about hip-hop yeah um I, I, there's a story I, I heard. I did some work with Mike to Clive Lowe a long while back, and you guys went to school together. Mm. And I, I hear stories about you guys kind of uh, tape battles. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, Mark was the only guy in, in school uh, that was making music anywhere near the kind of interest that I had. Um, Mark's interest at the time sort of lent more towards New Jack Swing, and he was kind of doing the semi MCs. He's very much in the R&B pop world. Very, very good. But we would have little battles because I was trying to make this kind of more sort of heavy hardcore rap music, and he'd be making this kind of like that kind of swing thing. So you know, he didn't really get where I was coming from, and I didn't really get where he was coming from. But we respected the fact that both of us wanted to have a life in music, which at that age was kind of rare, unless you were in the in the in the, in the school band or you were studying in the music room. And we didn't. I mean, Mark may have been doing that as well. When we were hanging out, we would literally go up the top of one of the towers of the big kind of grammar hall and we'd sit there over lunch and we'd play each other's beats and the only other guy who was actually involved in that was a guy called Andy Morton who's gone on to have great success in New Zealand and, and, and as Submariner and is one of my favourite producers and DJs in the world hands down so the three of us kind of came up together in an roundabout way what tipped you off to hip hop? Andy well for hip hop I, I, I can clearly remember the first time I ever fell in love with rap which led to hip-hop culture. I was watching an afternoon report, I believe it was on Video Dispatch, and it was a report on a rap tour that was going on around America with Run DMC. I think the Beasties were involved somewhere along the line, so it must have been about 84 and 85, and um, and maybe even a little earlier, because I remember I was into rap music when Live Aid hit at 85, so it must have been earlier than that. And um, I was just blown away by the energy of it, and... um, just how cool they looked and how amazing the stage set looked with the turntables on the on the riser with the black drape and the red sort of like siren lights going off and just how exciting the whole thing seemed. And I remember just watching that thinking, yeah, that's for me. Because I'd been really following my brother's record collection up to that point, discovering Led Zeppelin and the Smiths and Violent Femmes, Hoodie Gurus and all that kind of stuff. And that was the first time that I sort of went, that's what I want to listen to. That's my music. And no one's going to really get that. I didn't realize that it would be a long time before anybody got that. I mean, there there wasn't even categories in the record store. Kirk Harding, who works in America now at Universal, who's done very well for himself, will tell you, you know, 256 Records, I used to go in there, he remembers, we'd be with a school uniform rolling down there looking for rat records. They'd be in the blues and soul category. And all you could get was like, the odd Grandmaster Flash or Grandmaster Mally Mal record or those Street Sounds compilations that I think Morgan Kahn used to put together. They had like, you know, all the electro records of the time. And those, that, those are the only things that were out. And it just, for the longest time, it felt like we were in the smallest niche of music fans in the entire country. And we were, you know, no one got it. No one even imported it. Maybe me, Kirk, Phil Bell, aka Severe and Rob Salmon were the only ones that were kind of into it that I knew. And you started making it. You were uh, producing beats on your... I remember your Akai sampler that you had. Yeah. Um, but you were also rapping. Was there a conscious to- choice to do both or...? I just didn't know anyone who rapped and I didn't know anyone who made beats. So I just thought I'll do both. And that was just it. You know, I, I didn't know... I didn't have anyone to collaborate with. And, I, you know, I struck up a friendship with Rob Salmon not long after I started making music. And, um, and it, also, you know, the music I made initially wasn't on my own kit. 
it was uh, I used to I used to work in a studio with a guy called Graham who um, went on to have enormous success writing the incidental music and the theme music for Shortland Street. So that guy is paid. Um, but that aside, he was a he was a good man and he was generous with his time and. We used to make we used to make songs, and a lot of the early demos were made up in the in, in the attic of his house, and he had the most amazing studio. So eventually, because it was just harder to nail down time with him because he was so busy doing all the short and story stuff and various ad music and stuff, he was getting into syncs. That I just I had to reach out and make my own music and get my own kit, and so that's that's how I sort of ended up making my own studio and, and taking it really seriously because I would just kind of direct. I'd bring in loops and samples and go loop that, try that, do this, hit you know, offer a little bit here and there, and we collaborate and we'd, we'd end up with something that was good. And it was only until I started making it in my own bedroom that I really started to kind of I suppose develop my skills as a producer. Before that, I was very much about the rapping. I remember a lot of uh, sample-based stuff that you were doing at the time, and, and actually I heard a Next Man track this morning that, that samples the meters, and I remember you uh, getting into the meters and stuff, but there was also a Doobie Brothers track yeah. that I remember you put together, and yeah. you had difficulty with that. Well, it was the weirdest thing, because we, we were on a label called Deep Grooves at the time, and they they wanted like a follow-up to this the Flint and the Flame song that we'd done, which had kind of, I don't know, gone in at number 56 with a bullet or something. So they, they wanted like a big smash hit, and we were just mucking around at Graham's place with the... I think it was at Graham's house with that one, and with the Waterfall Believe sample. And uh, it was the easiest thing to put together, and everyone we played it to was like, that is a smash hit, like a number one smash hit. And then came the wrestling with between me and Ollie and Rob, and who, Ollie was the other rapper in the band, as to whether or not we wanted to do it, what it would mean to us. Because we took, and still do, take rap very seriously, and hip-hop culture very seriously, and it, success was nice if it came, but we were very much about putting, you know, making the most exciting sounding rap music and really following up our heroes at the time, which were like P-Rock and CL Smooth, Leaders of the New School, Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, you know, um, Arabi and Rakim, Public Enemy. These were the, the bands that we wanted to sound like and be as good as. And um, so we had this Doobie Brothers sample, which didn't really fit into any of that. And um, we recorded a demo version of it up at the School of Audio Engineering as like an exercise one night for Rob's course he was doing up there and everyone loved it so we're like cool we're sitting on this huge record that's awesome and we signed off on it as a band and went yeah let's just do it and then they came back and were like look we've got real problems with the sample and I just remember sitting there thinking in this in this meeting like it's New Zealand man like who gives a fuck you know like who cares like are the Doobie Brothers really gonna bust our ass over putting that out in New Zealand like what we sell like 5,000 copies and have a number one for two weeks and we get on like ready to roll like who gives a shit and and they and they bottled it the label bottled it and that's when I knew like this is fucked (laughs) you know like so what and nothing would have happened but in in a way it was a total blessing because I don't know if we would have actually gone on to make albums and tour like we did if we put that record out because songs like that can kill you as an artist you get known for that one song you try and come out with something different and and we were called leaders to start at the time so that's when we decided to change our name that was the kind of turning point for us to go you know what we're not this kind of band that's going to do you know have dancers up there and all that stuff we want to be MCs and a DJ and we want to go hard and so we changed it to Urban Disturbance What were you most proud of at the time? I liked the whole album I mean at that time the song I was most proud of was um, was the song, second song on the EP on the No Flint No Flame EP which was um I can't remember the name of it now. Pop, pop you and jet without a getaway car. It's uh, it was it was a I don't know. It was the beat that got damn native involved with me in the first place. He loved that beat, and I, that's why I ended up sort of producing a lot of his debut record. I love that song, but I'm proud of the whole album. I mean, I think 37 Degrees Latitude still stands up for me in terms of some of the production, 
of its time, the use of the samples, some of the ideas, like the song Love, which went kind of in all sorts of different time signatures, which was inspired by a documentary I saw about the Beatles one Sunday and then went upstairs and said, why can't you do that with rap? And the rhymes are really good. And, you know, there's moments that date, but overall, I think the whole record, I mean, the only thing I would say is I would love to do another mix of it. And that's no disrespect to Chris Sinclair, who did an incredible job on that album. Maybe it just takes another master, but I'd love to make it all sound a little more vibrant. But, um, you know, God, no one's got time for that. I got in touch with Simon Gregg, sort of looking for information, particularly around the sort of the free base cause celeb time. And he didn't have any recordings that he could dig out of Thank his boxes. Thank God for that. But uh, apparently there's a photo of you working the lights at the box. Well, that's how I got in. I mean, the thing is that I, I, we were underage or near enough. And um, Rob was such a good DJ that they agreed to let him do the first slot before John Davis or Roger or whoever was DJing. They would let Rob do the first hour or hour and a half. Because he was so good and they recognized his talent. And my end was that I would go and do lights for Rob and then inevitably do them for the night because, you know, someone couldn't come in or whatever. And that's how I kind of got into that club. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole box era, the Course Celeb era, you know, whether we were doing the free base thing in Course Celeb or, you know, we did, we, we did like a, a show down there as Urbanist or Leaders of Style, you know, back in the day. I mean, it was, it was our, you know, our clubbing. It was our time. It was our club. It was our era. It was our generation. It's where all our favorite DJs used to play, whether it was Manuel or Rob or whatever. Either that or down at the Brits at the Shoreland Bar. That's where we heard the best records. That's where we had the best time. And, uh, you know, I think everyone, if they're social and they like music and they like going out and doing both together, then, um, you know, you have that club or that bar that is that, is that, that moment in your life. And High Street, That's those were the places to go. What was Freebase? Well, that was, uh, that was Benny Harrop. And Nathan Haynes, Joel Haynes, and a bunch of characters all coming together in, a, in, a, in basically what was effectively a, an acid funk jazz band that wasn't as bad as that sounds. You know, they were really good and they used to really try things out. And they were, you know, pretty hardy souls, kind of real warriors for music, all characters in their own right, just real kind of ragtag bunch of dudes. And somehow I ended up doing some freestyling for them for a while. And then Ollie came and took my gig, and then we would split our time between it, each other. and you know, they'd use Ollie sometimes, he'd use me sometimes, and it was fun at the time, you know, and they put like a few things out here and there, probably some tapes floating around somewhere. It was cool. For us, it was just a way to stay sharp and earn a bit of cash. You know, it was like, cool, I can rap, I'm a rapper, I'm not recording, I'm not on tour, I need some pocket money, I'll go jump down to Brett's, jump down course to Lib, get on a couple of sessions with Freebase, make a bit of dough, happy days. Because people now talk about that time like that was a movement, like jazz and hip-hop coming together mm. in Auckland. That was that was kind of a revolution for a lot of people. It was a bowel movement at times. But, you know, there were definitely, you know, some, some good jams that came out of that, some good times, some good moments. Uh, Diamond, is a, I think there's a song called Diamond in the Rough. Had this weird, like, um, build that sort of went... Dun, 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 dun. I'm a diamond and it would, the way it would jump in I'd have to count every time before it came in because it was like it, it was Ben and Nathan's you know like their private joke that they would have an eight and a half count or like a seven and a half count so we'd go one two three four five six yeah I'm a diamond in the, and it would come in half and a half it was very I can't even do it to this day but they used to think it was hilarious it was just a private joke for them to see if I'd mess it up the whole thing at that time is, is it's good to hear that people like have this this fond memory of it and maybe it influenced some people I, I don't I've never met anyone <laughs> but um we were just having a laugh I mean we were just having a laugh I mean rehearsals were just non-existent was it around about that time you kind Actually, of that's got- not true there were rehearsals and but they would descend into chaos within about 10 minutes from memory <laughs> It was about, about that time you uh, hooked up with Manuel Bundy? 
No, I know Manuel a lot longer before that. I met Manuel through Rob. Uh, you know, Manuel has been part of Rob's family for a long, long time. And um, I mean, what can I say about Manuel? And the guy is probably the single most important musical influence on my life at a crucial point when I needed somebody to look up to, someone who understood my interests and my and me and Rob's interests and what we were into, someone who we respected. Wasn't a peer, he was more of a you know, big brother, you know, and um, guided us, got us into the Brits, got me, you know, kneeling down, rapping behind, you know, because he knew no one would take me seriously if I stood behind the decks because I just didn't look like a rapper that was around at the time. But he still put me on the mic and kneeled down, and, and he, he's the one who said, you know, do it not because I'm embarrassed or anything, but do it because you'll then get an honest reaction. You know, he's just a remarkably smart guy, and he's without a doubt one of the most musically talented people I've ever had the pleasure of working with or knowing. And that does, I don't say that lightly because I've been doing this a long time. So, you know, he's a natural ability in, in music. It's his God's gift, you know, apart from just being a really decent bloke. Massive influence on me. And to this day, I, I can't, I shudder to think how many records I borrowed in inverted commas of his and never gave back. So on the record, I'm sorry, Manuel. <laughs> I probably owe you a few hundred dollars somewhere online. The Damn Native record gets, well, uh, gets a claim as New Zealand's best hip hop record still. Yeah, I know. Some people say that still, you know. Um, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't say that. I mean, that's for other people who listen to a lot of records over time to make that decision. It's certainly the record I think I did the best work on as a rap producer. You know, it was a. It was a really magic time because you had Danny who was this just this kind of un and I mean this in a creative sense as well as in a stylistic sense, this unkept kind of talent. He just rolled in just like just rude boy, you know? And when he opened his mouth and he rapped, it wasn't so much what he was saying, because that was obviously well ahead of its time and crucial. But it, it, what really got me immediately was how he how he did it. He had just Anyone who produces rare records will tell you that what you're really looking for isn't just rhyme skill and ability because anyone can put a rhyme together and make it clever. It's that kind of almost indefinable quality in the voice that makes you want to listen to that person. Biggie Smalls had it. Tupac had it. You know, Jay-Z has it. Um, You know, Nas has it. Snoop has it. M has it. The great, you know, Roots Maneuver has it. The greats, when they get on the mic, you know, it's Dizzy or whatever, and they, they, they rap. You want to listen to what they're saying. Danny has that. When he opens his mouth, he had this kind of almost like kind of sing-songy menace to him where he would sort of sing various parts of it, but he'd be saying this the heaviest stuff. So he'd lull you in with these little pop hooks, very clever, but he'd be saying this crazy you know, stuff that he was very passionate about. So I recognized it, pushed him really hard, pushed him really hard to make an album, we had a few blips along the way, a few new credit issues along the way, which got resolved with some, you know, straight up talk, which is the only way we could handle it because there was no business involved at the time. There was no money being made. And um, and we got down to business. And it was a really, it was so, it was such hard work and it was just sleepless nights and constant 24-hour days and absolute massive respect to Chris Sinclair, who was the engineer I worked with throughout all of the New Zealand era of making music. That guy's fantastic guy and great engineer and um i've never ever seen him work so hard as we all did and in the end i think the record stands up for that you know because of what danny brought 
what his crew brought, what we all brought. It was just this labor of love to try and make this timeless New Zealand rap record that we just felt hadn't been, no disrespect, just felt like it hadn't been done before. Not to a level, you know, that we wanted to hear. And I'm glad people still feel that way. Um, I'm really proud of that album and I'm proud of, you know, Andy's contributions and Hamish's contributions. It just felt like it was a, a good moment. And yeah, and people like Scribe, P Money, they always they say good things. Listening to the production on that record, do you think some of the jazz snuck in? Yeah, definitely. But it wasn't because of Freebase or any of that. It's because of Tribe Called Quest. Because, you know, what, what Quest proved is that you can make jazz sound heavy and gangster and just tough and not, not make it sound like all twee. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I love Diggable Planets, but, you know, on that first Diggable Planets album, not so much the second one, they went heavier on that. On the first Diggable Planets album, it was all very kind of like, you know, very floaty. And what I wanted to do is, I mean, the thing about the jazz records as well is, is, is you can manipulate them much easier because there was a lot of separates on there. With funk records, everything's kind of mixed and mastered and it's all there. So you're taking it lock stock. With jazz, you get double bass sounds on their own. You get horn sounds on their own. You get drums on their own. Which when you, you know, at that point when we were learning how to kind of make beats out of separates, that was, that was the gold mine. No one had really hit them up just yet. So there was just, just this endless amount of breaks around that you could just tap into and we worked out by you know sometime after the Doobie Brothers fiasco that you could just sample whatever you wanted because no one's going to mess with you in New Zealand and if you have huge success and somehow it gets picked up well you cross that bridge when you come to it um, so we just went for it you know and just made whatever we wanted to make and uh, at last we had the technology to do it to a standard and um, we just had fun we just had fun just sort of going through and ripping these records and trying to make them sound fresh where did Brakes Co-op come from originally? Brakes Co-op was a reaction to the hiatus, the indefinite hiatus, which continues for Urban Disturbance, um, where we just decided to take a break. We kind of demoed a lot of the second record, and we really liked it, but uh, we just decided for one reason or another we need to go and pursue our own things for a while. Um, Ollie wanted to go and kind of get stuck into advertising and try something else and, and be creative in other fields, and I wasn't mad about that. I had a whole lot of beats I'd been making that didn't seem to suit an Urban Disturbance thing, and... You know, Shadow was just coming out, Moax was happening, DJ Crush, a lot of instrumental hip-hop was happening. And I thought, I'll try my hand at that, I can make beats, and it might be nice to not have to deal with rap, you know, rap and all that sort of stuff. So I just went ahead and did that, spoke to Kane, said, look, I'm off, I'm going traveling for a while, I don't know how long I'm going to be, uh, I've really got nothing to do, I'm bored out of my brain. And he's like, cool, I'll just book you some studio time, you can take you know, a storeroom over there and make this, you know, make your beats there, because I don't have a place to put my studio. Started making this record, finishing off these beats, then Hamish got involved. Um, quite early on and he just says look I'm coming to Auckland to hang out uh, I'm going to go travelling as well why don't we meet in the UK why don't we spend the next sort of six weeks making this record I said cool sounds fun he came up we set the studio up in a place up in his parents spot uh, over in Parnell overlooking the the, um, the the harbour which was amazing that's where the title Roofers came from because we were sitting out on the on the balcony one time just looking at all the roofs that were below us and just thought you know that's kind of would be a nice way to live your life when just going from roof to roof and just watching the world from on high um, and we just made this record and, and again it was one of those magic moments where we did it once we had the beats the basic beats done that we'd work on, on during the day on these beats get them to a standard go in that night record whatever we wanted to do embellish them musically or vocally with Chris again and kind of ideally mix them that day so really it only took a couple of weeks and that record was done great moments making that Sound of Vice was just one of the great creative moments in my life watching that come together watching Haim kind of just own that track and that record was done and then just kind of literally finished it finished the artwork signed off on it and like I think like 48 hours later I was on a plane with my life traveling and that's that was the that was the big departure um, and I forgot about it and then it came out as records do Deep Grooves true to their word they put it out did what it did 
didn't really hear much about it. And then again, over time, it sort of took on this life of its own. And the few people that bought it told a few more people that bought it. It started to steady do its job and it just kind of became a record that people would talk about when I'd go home. They wouldn't sort of say, how's MTV or whatever. They'd go, hey, when's the next Brace Cop record? I sort of go, what? Are you serious? They'd go, yeah, yeah, you know, we love that album. And I'd think, strangest thing to not have been a part of the life of that record. It's kind of had a life of its own. And that's how Brace Cop came about. There's a few other things going on. I would sort of almost do a chronology, but there's other stuff that sort of throw themselves in there. One is uh, broadcasting school that you went to for a little while. And one is Max TV. And I'm, I'm trying to get the sense of what order things happen, the travel, yeah. the, the study, the, you know, what was the story with that? That's easy. What happened was I was at a loose end after school, was making beats, you know, in the urban disturbance sort of era. Wasn't making any living, working in bars, you know, was doing all right, but didn't really do anything at that point. Decided that I needed to go and do the education thing for lack of anything else to do. University wasn't working out for me. Went to um, the Auckland Institute of Technology, I guess it's called, or Technological Institute. They were quite precise about that. Um, Started doing this kind of media degree, for lack of a better term. Got one full-time year into it. At the same time, I was kind of working at Max TV. I'd got this gig just being a tape op at Max TV, not in front of the camera, just playing tapes, which was a godsend because I needed money. It paid actually really well compared to what I'd been getting before. And it got me out of trouble. You know, I'd, I'd sort of been unemployed for about six months, just sitting around twiddling my thumbs, making beats, and it wasn't making my parents very happy. So got into that, and it was all happening around the same time. And then I kind of got offered this gig doing, uh, what was the big Sunday show that had Nathan and uh, Petra and the big Sunday on Ice, Ice TV? Mm. Yeah, I, I went through that whole process, and um, I don't know if this has ever been official, but kind of got offered a gig for Ice TV. And I turned it down because Max TV... I've been doing some presenting work. Max TV offered me a full-time evening gig. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't even know the reasons why I turned it down. It was ridiculous. On paper, it was the most ludicrous thing in the world because I was turning down this ter- nationwide terrestrial TV afternoon, massive, big hype show. There was nothing like it in the country. The money was really good for someone my age. I mean, it was really good for now. Um, I just decided to stay in music. I just wanted to be in that field dealing with artists and interviewing artists and I wanted to be true to that. So I turned it down and um, and I, and part of the deal of me turning it down was Max TV gave me enough money to leave my jobs and, and I decided to, I tried to do the part-time tech thing for a while but I just thought, you know, I'm getting the experience I need and, and I waited up and made the decision that, you know, I would put education on ice. So I did. Went full-time Max TV, did Serious Fun Show for a few years, ended up kind of making a lot of shows, getting production skills and, you know, learning how to make TV. Did that for sort of four or five years and then decided I was ready to go for various reasons. You know, nothing sinister, just um, had learned what I needed to learn from at that point, wanted to travel and kind of felt like the media was changing in New Zealand there's a lot of people out there with big checkbooks who wanted to kind of do the whole youth TV thing. And Max, I didn't know how Max TV was going to survive that. Whispers of MTV coming through, all that sort of stuff. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to make it look like I jumped ship. I kind of jumped ship. Am I right in saying you never did radio in New Zealand? No. I, you, you are right. I never did radio in New Zealand. I never did radio in Britain for the first two or, you know, two or three years. That came after I, I, I moved to Britain and uh, you know got my foot in the door at MTV, did some work at MTV, on the Up For It show, which New Zealand saw, <laughs> uh, doing all sorts of ludicrous things to, you know, justify my place. But I got to meet some great people. We did Temple Morris, you know, family friend to this day. Still got a lot of friends from that, good experiences from that. Got a gig at MTV News, 
just you know whatever I could turn my hand to, um, and then eventually, <clears throat> you got to remember at this time it's a real pop revolution going on. It's not dissimilar to how it is now. The cycle of trends it turned towards pop music. There really wasn't anything resembling good music on radio or television, um, you know, on mass. But they still had to satisfy that style of music on MTV. So they said, look, you can, you and this guy Paul can go away and make this show for next to nothing. And you can come up with whatever you want. Just do it within the budget. Choose your, choose your videos. And we'll put it out. We did. We called it brand new. And that really was, if you talk to a lot of bands around that time, it was kind of the only outlet for music videos for them. And it was a, it was a place where a lot of people used to go to see decent music because everything else was just straight up pop. And that's how I came to the attention to wrap it up of Andrew Phillips at XFM, who I believe his son told him about me from what I can gather. Before you got to Britain, there was a road trip across the States. Can you tell us a little bit about that? No. Your Kerouac experience. <laughs> it really wasn't that uh, vivid uh, or, or, or interesting. It, it was just an opportunity for me to do something that was fun before I, re, I resettled somewhere else. Uh, anyone who's, who's kind of relocated will tell you it's unsettling and expensive and tiring and nerve-wracking and scary. And I knew all those things were coming. So I just decided, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll, I'll jump in a car with a friend of mine, Jax, who'd done some directing, video directing for us. And I'd, he'd worked at Max TV. You know, we, he's a friend of mine. And uh, he's, a, he's a director. And we just jumped in a car in a great Buick. And we just drove from LA to New York over the course of what turned out to be about three weeks. Had some great experiences. You know, did see the American dream for what it was worth. And, you know, had some real time to reflect too. Because not every day is going to be like you say, the Kerouac experience. You can have days where you're on a beach somewhere in New Mexico or, or in Florida, kind of bored out of your box with nothing to do. Everyone's tired. You've been driving all day. What are you going to do? So you go for a run on the beach or you sit there and you think. So it was a really precious time for me and it, and it, and it got me to New York. And that's where I settled for you know, another two months, two and a half months until I had to travel to get, you know, legally to get out of the country. And then I went to England. But I, I, I really dragged myself to England. I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay in New York. I wanted to stay in America. I decided that that was where I was going to, you know, pursue my dreams and that's where I was going to have success. You know, I talked to everyone who could help help me. I spoke to Phil Keegan, you know, who was a wonderful guy. He gave me a good long chat on the phone one time when he was stuck in traffic in LA on a speakerphone telling me through the yums and I. And it's him that told me to go to Britain. He just sort of said, don't do it the way I did it. Don't, you know, it's a really long, hard road, very, you know, big legal process to become, you know, to get your passport, all that kind of stuff, because it's tough when you have to do it that way. Um, if, you know, in my opinion, I think you should go to Britain. That's where you've got a visa. That's residency potential. And you've got Brent Hansen and you should follow those leads. And that was the time. That's when I decided to go to Britain because of Phil. So you, you say Brent Hansen. Was there a kind of a Kiwi network that you t- tapped into that was waiting for you? No, not at all. In fact, it was through Roger Shepard at Flying Nun that Brent got my tape. Somehow Roger got my you know audition tape, my showreel, which was ridiculous. It was like 25 minutes long. It was, it was a scene. I had like a 30-page resume. It was just stupid, you know. But I didn't know the rules. So he got it, really liked it, sent me an email, completely unprovoked, saying, hey, what's up? Just really short. My name is Brent, I work at MTV, and i just literally seen a thing on 60 Minutes about how Brent Hansen was spearheading this new MTV UK thing, and it was going to be this big thing, and I just remember thinking, God, I'd love to work there. And he reached out a couple of weeks later, a week later, just by chance, and said, if you're ever in Britain, look me up. And uh, I went back to him, and that's when I decided to go traveling, and, and I did like a little three-week run around Britain and, and America and New York. I went to London and New York for like three weeks on a holiday, and uh, came and saw Brent, and 
he was amazing. First time I met him, I met him at the Q Awards. You know, he just he got me a ticket to the Q Awards, and so I show up at the Q Awards, don't know anybody, and he's like, "Hi, I'm Brent Henson." I'm like, "Wow!" And there's Johnny Ma. You know, so <laughs> it was quite a moment. I never forget. I went up because they had these cameras on the tables, these disposable cameras that used to be able to go and take photos of everyone. And I went and had my photo taken with Johnny Ma, and I came back, and he shook his head at me like, "You fanboy." And it was great. It was just like I felt so uncool, you know. But fuck it, I've still got that photo somewhere. What was your big break, if you had to name a moment that, that you thought, you know what, this is going to work out pretty well? I, I've been lucky. I would say I've had more than one break in life to get where I got. I'm totally aware that you know I've been fortunate in this. And I've worked hard, but I've only worked hard at making the most of the opportunities that have been presented to me. In terms of creating my own opportunities, I think that's something that personally I've done later in life when I've been able to build on what I've already got. But early on, you know, the rights and getting me into Max TV was a huge moment, you know, and I'll always be, be grateful to Daniel and Katie and Dale and, and the whole family for for getting me in, you know. Um, from there, Brent Hansen, from there, Christine Bohr at MTV and Eddie Temple Morris and a guy called Jim Parsons who convinced, them, uh, you know, the, the big boss man at the time to let me fill in for Eddie for two weeks and it up for it in the afternoon. I mean, I had no experience in Britain. There was no reason for them to say yes to that. But they did, and uh, and that was huge. Um, you know, Andrew Phillips, anyone who's taken me on and employed me has kind of gone beyond the process of, I've always felt, of just employing me, and they've really believed in me, and they've continually given me a platform to do what I love to do, and um, I'm really grateful for that. But I would say, really, the, the crucial moment as to why we're here right now having this conversation, you know, is is probably, you know, the Max TV thing. I mean, that really was the start of it all. Before that, I was a struggling rap producer, making rap records, loving it, but working in bars, doing a degree I wasn't a hundred percent, you know, into. Um, I thought the don't get me wrong. I thought the uh, the uh, criteria was great, awesome format, lots lots to learn. But I was just done with education at that point. I wanted to get out there. Max gave me that chance, um, you know, and. Uh, there's people here at Radio 1, you know, I'm grateful to as well. Joe Harland and Reese Hughes, Andy Parfitt, you know. Really lucky, man. I genuinely feel fortunate to be able to talk about music and immerse myself in something I'm into deeply. And uh, I don't want it to end, you know. I want to just keep just keep, wanna keep doing it. I, I love it. It sounds like that's kind of the summary of what you do, is you're a music fan who gets to enthuse about it. In a nutshell, yeah. You know, I, I get to... Uh, get as close to music in every way as I possibly can, whether it's playing it out, playing it on radio, making it whenever I can, talking to musicians, you know. I mean, the whole thing about the interviews and why people always say, are oh, you good at interviews? It's because I love musicians. <laughs> you know, I love being around them. I love talking about music, you know. Now I do an interview with a band. It might take 10 minutes to get what we need to get across on Gonzo. Back in the day when we do, you know, like we used to do, serious fun show if I got like time with Katie Lang I'd spend an hour I mean I can't even imagine how boring it must have been for people to watch this on, on, on Max TV on a Friday or a Thursday evening like there's me oh it's Zane and Katie Lang again oh they're still going wow he spent nine minutes talking about producers wow that is fucking boring you know but somehow they let me do it and that's how I learned and because I just wanted to know everything there was to know about music how to make it how you put it out this that and the really great thing is that a lot of years later, I still don't really know, you know, how it's done. I mean, I know how I like to do it. I know what I like. 
I know what seems to work in the record industry in terms of making records relatively successful. I've seen it happen enough. But that's all just mechanics and math. It's, I still don't really know. I haven't gotten anywhere closer towards understanding the actual essence of music, and that's and that's good. that's a very good thing. And yet, one of the biggest, well, certainly in New Zealand, one of the biggest radio singles of all time uh, is something that you were very closely involved with. Well, that second break's co-op album was just, uh, again, that was really a case of us just following, you know, the album. It, it was a very different thing when we were making it in the bedroom, me and Hamish. It was um, it was pretty schizophrenic beast, you know. It was There was rap sort of kind of tunes on there and there was sort of instrumental hip-hop and there was up-tempo stuff and then there was these folky things and it was really weird. And um, we really didn't have any idea about... We were just going to mix a few things and see, see where it came until we teamed up with Andy Lovegrove who was one half of the away team who engineered the demos and made them sound fresh and um, we gave him the other side we gave him a bunch of records because I'd heard him sing on the away team stuff and just was like this guy's insane and much like it happened with Ollie you know where I said to Rob at the early days of Leaders of Style wouldn't it be great if, if Ollie came back from America and joined our band you know and then like the next day he caught up like I've decided to move home can I dance with you know for your band it's like no you can rap in our band you know and the same thing happened with Andy I said to Hamish wouldn't it be amazing if we could get Andy to sing on our stuff and um, so we sent him some of the demos and, and we actually wanted him to sing on, on uh, the song that ended up being duet he chose the other side as the first thing to sing on and then he sent the demo over and was like I think it might be a bit cheesy for you guys you know I'm concerned that it might be a bit commercial and you might not be into it but whatever and I was like no 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 cheesy's good let's just check it out it's fine and when I heard it I was like that is just like easily along with like along with I would say you know um, uh, Sound of Vice the most instant thing I'd ever been involved in I was let's do it went and recorded it and then we said to Andy would you be interested in singing on a few other things and he's like yeah yeah cool if I get some money we'll maybe finish the record went to EMI New Zealand Morgan Chris Caddick good people yep here's some dough go finish it in fact they didn't even give me in fact you know what scrap that they didn't say here's some dough they just said yeah if you can deliver a record we'll put it out so I self-financed the whole record I paid for all that you know and um, and it was it was it was the best investment probably I've ever I mean, one of the best investments I've ever made when that record came out in the UK I was already living here and I went and saw Breaks Co-op live and the one thing that really stood out to me is you weren't in the room uh, was was it weird for you to uh, sort of be in a position where you could actually promote the hell out of a record that you were involved in? And was there a conscious decision not to do that? Yes. 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 <laughs> Is the short answer to those the, 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 those questions. I mean, it was weird. It was a conscious decision at the time. And I sort of regret it now, you know, in a way, because I, I sort of feel like we did all this work on the record and then I kind of walked away but it, it was it was because partly because I couldn't logistically do it because of my my, my jobs here um, and then the record got picked up internationally and there was talk okay can you tour in Britain Parlophone are going to put it out la 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 we just decided as a group that there was well I decided the guys will probably say they never agreed to it but and they and they, and I'm, they didn't but I, I thought that it would just be distraction um, to have me on a record like this um, and touring it and then we got the best news in the world. We found out we were going to become parents, my wife and I. And, and just logistically, again, it just became way too difficult around that time to tour. So there was no question that I was ever going to tour or not. It was weird. I look back on it now and I've, I've got no regrets, I suppose, because it just was the way it had to happen. But part of me wishes I'd had a chance to spend a little more time on the road with those guys if the timing had been different. Because I never got a chance to see those songs develop and breathe 
in front of an audience. But, uh, you know, something pretty strange and weird about watching your band play Top of the Pops without you. It's quite a surreal experience. <laughs> it really was quite a strange thing. But they did good. And uh, Breaks Co-op have played large music festivals. Mm. As a DJ, you've played to like big, big crowds. Mm. And how do you kind of... I mean, standing in a room with the lights dimmed down and talking into a microphone is one thing, but mm. being confronted with that many people, what's that like? Well, it's experience, you know. You just you do enough of them and you you get a handle on different environments and different moods, different crowds, you know. Whether, I mean, yeah, playing Wembley Stadium is bizarre. I'm not going to lie to you. It's the weirdest thing to do. You might only reach 5,000 people on the floor. Everyone else is, you know, drinking soda and having a conversation, but still standing in the middle of that arena playing records for the day is just it's a very surreal thing. Um, but then, you know, you get to play small clubs or you play like, you know, academies, whatever. It's just you do enough of them and, and over time, hopefully you get better, more confident, and you just develop your own technique and your own style. I love DJing. I love playing records out. It's kind of been, for me, it's been a very um, useful way to satisfy the performing side of me, which I do a little bit on my radio show, the way that I interact with the music and, and my energy in it. But it's been really good for me to kind of, because I didn't get to, 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 to tour with Brace Cop. It's been a long time since I've really felt like a performer and, and the DJing gets me, gives me a chance to do that. And at the same time, I'm self-sufficient. Apart from the crew I roll with, the guys who, who tour with me on a production and tour management level, I can kind of do it myself. You know, I'm in charge of what I do and I love it. It's only really at the end of this year I've been thinking about, okay, do I want to kind of do something collaborative again? Because the last two years since the Breaks Cult project has been really enjoyable for me just to go out there and I can sit there on my laptop or at home in the studio and I can just make an edit of something or do something original and go, I'll try that out tonight. You know, it's not mixed and mastered to, to release quality, but it's good enough for a sound system. I'll go in there, I'll play it and you get that immediate response to something that you've made and it's it's great. And you know, I've been lucky again in the sense the last two or three years, I guess through a lot of gigs and the right gigs, that as a DJ, you know, I've reached a certain level, you know, where it's not just about, oh, he's the guy from TV and radio. It's like, okay, he can he can do it. It's always been very important to me that I'm not cashing in on something. And, and that's on every level. Even when I was doing Max TV and stuff, I, I never wanted that to be a conflict with my music career. It's really important that I was separate. And I think kind of in a way that kind of comes from my mum, you know, and my dad. And they've always been kind of like, you know, you should pick your moment. You should identify what it is you want to do and you should be as, as pure to that as you can. And you've gone from somebody who's a fan to somebody who has fans. I mean, like we, we interviewed some some people outside your gig and they were just, we love Zane Lowe. And I, I'm sure you get that all the time. Um, how do you keep your ego in check or do you? Well, <laughs> I don't get that all the time because I'm not around that. You know, I don't go looking for that. And I don't surround myself with it at gigs. I don't sort of hang about afterwards to get a pat on the back. You know, we get in, we get out, we do our job. It's fine to say hello to some people, but we don't we don't hang about. Um, so it's good that people enjoy it. But I, I really do think of myself as a conduit between music and fan. And whether it's on radio, whether it's in clubs or gigs or whatever, if I'm DJing um, or interviewing a band to try and reach their audience, I'm just a connector. You know, I'm I'm, I'm a recommender and a connector. And I do it my own way, and that's enabled me to have, make a really good life out of it and enjoy myself, you know. Um, but when people say I'm a real big fan of what you do, I, I sometimes want to say, well, what, what is it you think I do? You know, because I just sort of play records, and, if, and if, if it's enjoyable for you to hear me do that, then great. But I think what people really mean is they're fans of the music, they're fans of 
what we all share together which is that that real interest in new music and music as a whole and um I'm just doing my best to kind of do a little bit in the in the great tradition of people like Stephen Mack and John Peel and you know um, Tony Vance and um, great DJs from throughout my life that have been done great things for music and um, I just want to be held in that in in that kind of regard. Um, but the way I do it will also provoke reaction. You'll get a lot of people who don't like what I do, and I guess that's just that's also the way the modern media too. You know, there's opinion there's opinion formers and opinion makers and opinion holders everywhere. So if you immerse yourself too much in what people say about you, you will go crazy. So you just, just better, better left alone, really. You've championed lots of bands throughout your career, like lots of bands that have made it because you've championed them. Um, and to an extent, there's a sort of the odd Kiwi ones filtered through. Has that been sort of done deliberately? Is there any kind of championing of your roots? Or I, I, Honestly, it's never done because of where I'm from. It's never done because I feel I need to give something back. It's done because the music's great. It doesn't mean it doesn't, taste sweeter it doesn't mean that it doesn't feel better for me to play records that do all right and to ha- have some kind of contributing factor towards the success of local artists it, it, but it's definitely not why i do it i don't go in with a quota of like i really want to you know it's got to be genuine decent and amazing and um you know I, I don't want to ever be in a situation whereby i'm kind of doing it for that for that you know for the, because i'm from somewhere but it does feel good it feels good to play a record on radio and you know, it come from New Zealand and it sounds good next to a record from America or Britain or Europe or Asia or wherever, Africa. Sounds good. You do a, a thing, Hottest Record of the Week. Uh, you got to get a lot of records. How do you choose that? Well, Hottest Record in the World today was just our way of kind of like putting a stamp on something and, and, and putting a record above the others and giving it and giving it some kind of platform beyond all the great records that we play. And the way it's worked out is that that, record, is that, that kind of part of the show is now, you know, it, it, it sort of as a feature feeds itself because if you call something as ridiculous as the hottest record in the world today, we genuinely mean it when we hear it. We're like, that is the biggest record we've got in our set. Then it, it sort of, as, as, as titles go, it demands a certain amount of attention. And that's what the record label and the band and the artists who, who you know, get, that's what they want. They want to go like, cool, we've got that. Um, so everyone wins. We win, the audience win. You know, it's, something stands out. It just is the. It's either the biggest return or the most exciting new record. It, it, they, it's really easy. That decision is really easy. The only tricky thing is if you have a light week and you got to be creative. But that's good too because we love those weeks because we get to go. Okay, well, we like you know volcano choir. No one knows them, but the song's so great that it deserves its position. Um, but sometimes you have weeks where you just sport for choice. You know, you get all these big exclusive returns, Foo Fighters here or Prodigy there or whatever, and you're like, cool, excellent. You know, I love being able to play them first. It's not a competition, but it's nice. It's good for the show because we have nothing else. It's not like I'm I'm particularly entertaining or I'm not a breakfast show host. I'm not funniest guy in the world by any stretch. And you know, so really, music is our currency. And so if we can have these kind of big returns and have worldwide exclusives, it's kind of part of what I think gets people excited about the show. So you're on Radio One. It's a station designed for. 15 to 29 year olds you've just turned 36 how much longer are you going to be doing this it's a really good question I, I can't answer it you know for me I get as much enjoyment and hopefully that comes across as I did the first day I started um, and what I'm trying to do is create a, an exciting sounding radio show that plays all sorts of different types of music so as long as we continue to push that excitement through and find the most exciting music, I'd like to think that there's that there's time. But for me, those decisions get made by somebody else normally. And from my point of view, I haven't reached a point where I'm, I'm you know, I'm I think I'm ever gonna 
I haven't reached a point where I feel like I know the answer to that question. And I think if I do, before they do, it'll be quick. Because if you're ever lucky enough to get to a situation where you pull time on something that you enjoy before the audience does or your, or your employer, I mean, that is like, you know, that's magic. That's, 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 that's the kind of stuff that preserves it for you and for everybody else. But I can't say that I'm smart enough or confident enough to be able to do that because I love what I do so much. I might just get pulled in like everybody else and then find out that, you know, time's up before I even saw it coming. All I can do is focus on the show at hand and go on air tonight in half an hour and smash records as fast and as hard as I possibly can and leave people with a sense of enjoyment for new music. And, you know, that's all I can focus on, one show at a time. And um, at the moment, I'm, I, I love working here as much as I did the first day I started. New Zealand's most successful broadcaster ever. No, surely not. On the numbers. Would you ever go back? Yeah, of course. Never say never. Never say never. I love New Zealand. It's my home. It's where my family is. It's where my, a lot of my friends are. A lot of memories there. You know, we very much enjoy going home every year and spending time with friends and family. And our kids love it. You know, but um, yeah, I, I'm certainly not on the horizon right now. Um, this is our, our children were born here. They're being raised here. We love Britain. We love London. I love the energy of the place. I love the you know I love the fact that there's music that can be invented here that seems to be able to come from nowhere else like dubstep or drum and bass or whatever. You know, it just seems to be this is where the, the music is made for me. And, um, you know, I, I love it. But, man, you know, we, we're never that far away from home, ever, you know. Finally, given the choice, play records for the rest of your life or make records for the rest of your life? Oh, <laughs> can I do both? Can I do both? Isn't there time to do both? Maybe there's an answer to your question. Maybe at some point, for whatever reason, I might, I might not be broadcasting as long I'd like to think that there'll be time for me to go in there and use my experience another way. And maybe there's still time for me to go back and do what I originally wanted to do, which is make records and help people make records. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's part of my future. I'll say that. And um, it's something that I'm in no hurry to jump into because I'm very happy where I am. But it's certainly something I would like to do. And if I found myself without the best radio show in the world to do, the best slot, the pleasure of doing that, and the privilege and honor of being a part of that, then maybe I could spend a little time making some records and contributing in a different way. So both is the answer. That's a younger but no more or less passionate Zane Lowe, recorded about 10 years ago at a time when we all thought, gosh, hasn't he done well? And of course, since then, well, the link to the New York Times feature article about him is in the show notes. And believe it or not, that timing's a complete coincidence. I saw the article the day after I scheduled this episode. Maybe something about the universe aligning, who knows. But that's the MTF podcast. I'm Dubber. You can find me at Dubber on Twitter. And Music Tech Fest is at Music Tech Fest basically everywhere. The MTF podcast's out every Friday. And you can, of course, share, like, rate, and review. And do subscribe wherever you prefer to listen. Hope you enjoyed. Have a great week. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.